Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 11, uh, as we continue in our Road Less Traveled series. We are getting through the book, seems like there's about 30 sermons in, in chapter 11 itself. It just keeps going, but some great stuff for us this morning. <clears throat> uh, Max Licato wisely wrote about legalism a few years ago, and this is what he says. Legalism is the search for innocence, not forgiveness. It's a systematic process of defining self, explaining self, exalting self, and justifying self. The obsession with legalism, self, not God. Legalism has no empathy on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, and makes my opinion your obligation. So I think if Licato was living at the time of Jesus, he could have replaced the word legalism with Phariseeism. And here's what happens this morning in our text. Jesus, in 13 verses, just wipes out, takes out Phariseeism with one big swoop. And here's how he does it. He does it with these like straight shots of truth, like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. Against both the Pharisees and their teachers, the lawyers or experts in the law. <clears throat> and here's why truth is so important. Think about this with me for a minute. We count on truth, you and I, in everyday life just to function. When we get a home loan, we expect the numbers and the interest and all that the banker tells us to be truthful. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> when we buy insurance, we expect truth. We purchase a car. I typically, except for once, have purpose, uh, purchased used cars. And there were times when what the owner told me in light of what I bought wasn't true. That will mess you up when you don't have any extra money. <clears throat> Excuse me. We expect truth from the mechanic, from the doctor. When we go and get our lab reports back from the doctor, we expect truth. And here's what happens. Life unravels if people lie to us. Relationships crumble. But, in a, but if we could live in a world or did live in a world of liars, we'd still be okay in the life to come if just one person told us the truth about the world to come through Christ. But we also could get told the truth in this present world all the time and yet miss eternity with God by one liar if that liar happens to be the spiritual leader that you and I trust. So what we know is the world is full of spiritual liars, religious liars, and false teachers. And now in our world of media, we can tap into them any time, in any place we want. So this is the satanic system that is at work and has been at work across the face of the world. And this morning, this is why this text is so unique, Jesus speaks into this system with truth to destroy what I have called hollow, false religion. So let's read our text with us. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 11. <clears throat> uh, you have a real Bible, that's fine. I'm becoming a little soft 
In my old age, if you have an electronic one, you're welcome to use that. How about that? First time I ever said that at Fellowship Bible Church. All right, read with me. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. <clears throat> While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash his hands before dinner, or wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did you not, or did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe in mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, speaking of the prophets, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him and something he might say. <clears throat> There's a lot there. And so this morning, let's take a minute, step back, and let's get the setting. Let's sort of see what's going on here. We see in verse 37, Jesus was speaking and a Pharisee asked him to go to lunch. Jesus was speaking and a Pharisee had said, hey, let's go eat. So there's a group of them, verse 39, it's a plural word, Pharisees. They're together and imagine they go to Cracker Barrel, sit down and have some good old Cracker Barrel Southern eating. Now, Jesus is addressing Pharisees here. So as I look at this text, the first thing I've got to understand that you've got to understand is who and what in the world is a Pharisee. Well, they are the religious leaders of the day. And their word actually means separate ones or separated ones. And here's what they want. They want spiritual holiness and godliness. And they knew Israel's condition, present condition, was because of Israel's sin. 
They believed in the inspiration and the authority of the scripture. They believed in Satan. They believed in angels. They believed in hell. And they believed in the resurrection of the dead. Now you tell me, in modern America, what group of people are they most like? You. Us. So here's what that text tells us. You and I better pay attention to think that this text doesn't apply to us. We're missing it. Folks, we are in way danger because they really believe, big picture, the same things we believe. But the problem with the Pharisees is not in what they believed, but in what they actually became and in what they did with what they believed. They got sidetracked, as Howard Hendricks put. He said they got so caught up in God's work that they forgot God himself. Instead of being the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, which they certainly should have because they were Old Testament experts, they were the first to reject him. Instead of turning to the nation, turning the nation to him, they sought to turn the nation away from Christ, the Messiah. I love how Charles Swindoll sort of summarizes who these men are that we're talking about. He says their polished exterior, impressive theological knowledge, dawning ability to debate, and rigorous adherence to Jewish tradition gave them immense authority over the working class Jew. No one dared to challenge the Pharisees for fear of excommunication. And along with that, they tied eternal consequences to it if you went against them. No one dared to do that except for Jesus. Back to the story, verse 38. What surprised the Pharisee, it says in our text, was the fact that Jesus did not wash up, did not wash his hands before he ate. They would have been highly disappointed with me because I don't usually wash my hands before I eat. Some of you just got grossed out that I even would admit that, right? But, but, but so what is that about? Is this about personal hygiene? No. This comes from their 600 plus rules and regulations that they actually added to the Old Testament. It came from, if you want some delightful reading over the Christmas break, I would encourage you to purchase the Mishnah, their little rule book. It's just a glorious read. I played with it a little bit, segments looking at it this week. It was crazy. When it came to hand washing, you had to pour water out of a clean jar. Someone poured it on your hands. And then as you washed your hands, you had to put your hands up and make sure the water ran past your wrist. If, it, if you lowered your hands and the water went back to your hand, then your hand was still defiled. I mean, it, it got crazy. They had this obsessive, compulsive ceremonial purification, which was their life 24-7, 365. So here's what Jesus does. He knows that, and on purpose, he shocks them by not participating in their stupidity. Verse 39 Jesus talks about the washing of the outside of the cup and the dish. Then he moves that metaphor imagery over to compare it to the inside of a man. Jesus says, your outside can be very clean, men and women, but what is more important is your inside. 
the heart being more important than appearances. Jesus is saying the way to godliness, this is important for us, is from the inside out, not the what? Outside in. The Pharisees looked great on the outside, but Jesus said their hearts were full of greed and wickedness. In some ways, Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you're an imposter. You're a fake. You're like an actor. Think about actors, some of your favorite actors. What they do on the screen is not really who they are. The guy, Christopher Reeves, that played Superman, do you think he can really fly in person? No, he's a fake. We have actors who play these roles. I can't think of anybody in my head. I'm not a big movie guy. Somebody give me an actor. Matt Damon. What do he play in? <laughs> Who's Matt Damon? I'm just kidding. All right. You get my point though, right? What you see on the screen they're doing, that's not who they really are in life or in real life. Jesus is saying, you're an imposter. You're an actor. You're playing a religious role like an actor in a play. You're like a hypocritos. And hypocritos is the Greek word where we get our word hypocrite. It doesn't mean that we fail to meet some standard. Hypocritos means you wear a mask. And Hippocritos was the guy in a Greek play who before scene one, for example, would walk across the front of the play and he had a mask on that was sad. And he was indicating to the audience <clears throat> that the next scene you see is going to be sad. A Hippocritos is the one who wears a mask. <clears throat> Jesus calls them on that. And there's in verse 40 and 41, he calls them fools because they who know theology, forgot the most basic theology in the world. And that is that God made both the outside and the what? Inside. Here's the picture of what's going on here. <clears throat> Imagine if you came to my house to eat breakfast. You expect at least to get a bowl of cereal, Cheerios, Honey Nut. And on the table in front of your place setting was a bowl and it was sparkly clean. There wasn't a germ on it. And as you turned the bowl over to pour your honey nut Cheerios in it, you found the bowl full of maggots. Just let that one sit with you. You're probably not coming back to Fellowship Bible Church. And you're probably going to gossip about Jenna Patton, my wife, right? Like, what in the world is the maggots doing in there? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what you are, Pharisees. Then in verse 41, he said, the remedy to this <clears throat> is empty the bowl. He says, you're greedy on the inside and the remedy or antidote for greed is generosity. And then he, he moves on and you'll see in your notes, he exposes the Pharisees with three woes and then he exposes the lawyers with three woes. Let's take a look at what happens next. Exposing the Pharisees, verses 42 and through 44. So here's what's amazing here. Jesus goes right into him, shot of truth. He barely takes a breath before he follows these words with these three stinging woes. And a woe is a deep expression of grief to the one it is spoken to. It is this deep expression of warning. Jesus is grieving the fate, the end fate of these Pharisees when he uses this word. So his first one is, woe to you 
who major in the minors. And for each one of these woes, I've given you a word for memory's sake. The word there is priorities. These Pharisees have gotten their priorities mixed up. They make what's major minor and what's minor major. The Pharisees were so meticulous in the details of the law, they lost sight of the purpose of the law. Jesus put it another way in Matthew 23, speaking of the Pharisees uh, uh, majoring in the minors. He said, they strained gnats and swallowed camels. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you have gone <clears throat> way over the top here with your tithing. Now you think about that. If I were to stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, tell me my worst trait. Tell me the thing I need to work on most. And he says, man, you tithe too much. Well, I'll take that. <laughs> and they were supposed to tithe 10, 10%, and that's certainly good. Agricultural farmers of the day were supposed to do that. But here's what they did. They go to their garden, husband and wife get up in the morning, they drink some coffee, they go out to the garden and they're picking some mint leaves. And as they do, they count out 10 and the 10th one they put in the tithe basket. And then they get some herbs from the garden and they pick those, they count them out and the 10th one they put in the herb basket. Very meticulous. And then they go back inside and they sit around and talk about what a godly, holy couple they are. They say in their hearts and maybe even with their mouths, like the Pharisees did, I thank God that I am not like other people and I tithe so beautifully. And Jesus says, yes, you're doing that, but you're forgetting the whole point of the law for justice for God's people and love for God and his people. It's like a dad who can be so careful in the training of a horse and yet so uncareful and absent when it comes to the training of his son. Jesus is saying here, both of these are important, tithing and justice and love of God and his people, but you have made the minor the major and the major the minor. They obeyed the rules without obeying God's heart for the needy, broken and suffering neighbors. They had rule keeping without a relationship with God and others. Here's what I think we can do sometimes. We can nitpick people to death. It's just one implication. When we focus on their behavior without asking the why behind their behavior. We just look at them and we say, you're bad. That's bad. Look at you versus, hey, are you okay? Everything going all right? How are you doing on the inside? I wish that I would have known that as a teenager growing up in my house. My dad was an alcoholic. Drank every night. Miserable conditions. What I didn't find out though until my early 30s was my dad started drinking the day after my older brother, John, died at three months and nine days old. I could have spoken into that. Dad, you okay? What's going on? Tell me, tell me what you're feeling about John. 
Losing your son's hard. So they majored on the minor. Secondly, Jesus said, Woe to you who obsess over prestige and the praise of men. And your word there from remembrance is position. Verse 43. <clears throat> Even though the Pharisees were full of evil and greed, that is not how they were regarded in the public. They were deeply driven by their desire to have men's approval rather than God's. They also... This desire prevented them from speaking the truth because if they spoke the truth, then what would happen is the people would hate them and reject them like they hated and rejected Jesus. So trying to have the applause of men cuts down on what you can actually say to men. They sat in the best seats, the text tells us, in the church. And these seats in the synagogue actually sat on the stage. Now you imagine Mon and I on Sunday mornings coming up and there's two big uh, chairs here. It looks like a king's throne and we walk up here and we sit in them and you see us and we see you. We are in all our glory. Religious limelight. That's what they did. Achieving this religious status gratified their need for human applause. So here's what they ended up doing. They ended up serving themselves instead of serving the people of God. They could see everyone and everyone could see them to once again play the role of the religious actor. And here's how Spurgeon said that, this appearance is with the outside. He says, the clothes does not make the man. The outside does not make the man. And then lastly, to the Pharisees, Jesus says, Woe to you who defraud others. And the word there is pollution, verse 44. Here's what would happen in that culture. Once a year, the tombstones would be whitewashed so people could see where the tombstones were. That way they would walk over them or they would walk around them or they'd stay away from them because they believed, the Pharisees thought, there was nothing more than filing than death or a corpse or a dead body. So they believed one became defiled even if their shadow crossed a dead body or grave. And Jesus, with his most painful up to this point and most pointed accusation to the Pharisees called them themselves, those who hated death and hated the grave and hated a corpse, he called them an unmarked grave. You can't see it, but that's what you are. He says, when people run into you, when people are around you, you defraud them because you lead God's people to become unclean because they're around you, the religious leaders. They see what you do, therefore they mimic you and you pollute them. It really cuts to the core of their values and identity. He says, you are like a corpse. <laughs> he says, you are like a dead person. You defile people, you make them worse. You're supposed to be a conduit of redemption as a religious leader, but instead you bring your pollution and you mark them with it. You're literally leading people to death. That's the irony when you think that you're leading them to life. You are the blind leading the blind, and both of you will fall into the grave. As we pause here a minute. Let me ask you three questions, three big picture questions when we think about the Pharisees being exposed by Jesus. The first is, 
How do we major on the minor and minor on the major? One way is we give money to the mission, but we're living a completely double life. I have a picture of this in my head going back to my dad, and I'm not trying to hammer him this morning, but it does fit the spiritual culture that I grew up in. I live this, and I can turn to this. I have lived this as a believer, too. But my dad was generous. He would write checks to the church. He would give money to the church, and yet he was intoxicated every evening. Secondly, how much do we love the praise of man and people thinking well of us over above the truth? Do we think the clothes makes the man or the house makes the man or the job makes the man or the club we're in makes the man or the circles we run in makes the man or the color of the skin we have makes the man? That that's where we get our worth and value from, from what's outside? And we could give a thousand examples here. And again, once again, in my home, external appearances were everything. What you wore, how your hair looked, what you drove, what kind of furniture you had, decorations, was all about external appearances. And we looked great on the outside. But it was rotten on the inside. And then thirdly, are you a conduit of redemption to those you have influence with, to those you work with, to your children, your spouse, when they are around you? Here's a great exercise that I've done on numerous occasions. And the response sometimes is painful, but also good. Go to those in whom you have influence with and sit down and ask them, how do you experience me? You'll find out if you're a conduit of redemption or if you are polluting them, mistreating them. So then Jesus moves to exposing the lawyers, verses 45 through 52. One of the lawyers hears Jesus' three woes to the Pharisees. And he speaks up, and in some ways he's threatening a class action lawsuit here. <laughs> Now, when you think of these lawyers, though, we got to think they're not like our lawyers. The NIV calls them experts in the law, experts in the Old Testament. So think about it this way. If the Pharisees were the laymen or the practitioners of this sick religious system, the experts were the theologians. They were the professors and they are the ones that came up with the 600 additional rules and regulations that the Pharisees tried their best to put into practice. They're the ones that came up with the obsessive, compulsive washing of the hands before you ate. The lawyer experts are a picture of all those, in some ways, who misrepresent what the Bible actually teaches. From liberal Protestantism to cults. And here's what you and I know. We know the world is full of false teachers who call themselves what? Religious what? Experts. So the lawyer says to Jesus, yo, it's Hebrew for yo. You're picking on my boys. And when you hurt their feelings, you hurt my feelings. 
Because we're the ones that teach them. We're the ones that actually instruct the Pharisees. When you attack one of us, you attack all of us. Jesus hardly took a breath. He did not flinch. He basically said, you daggone right, I insulted them. And I'm going to insult you more. You have more accountability. You know more. You're in a position of authority. And I'm coming at you with three more harsh woes. More harsh than I even had for the Pharisees. And his first one is, woe to you who burden God's people unnecessarily. Woe to you who pile on. There's your word. Verses 45 and 46. You think about when King David wrote about God's law, write one Psalm, write Psalm 119 down. Go back to that Psalm and you'll see that when David wrote about the law, it was such a blessing. But when the experts of the law interpreted this law, it became a burden to the people. What God had graciously given to protect and provide for his people, the experts had perverted it and turned it into an unbearable rule book, which was so complicated that they even, they could not understand it, let alone live it. When Jesus taught the law, think about it, he was motivated by compassion. He literally looked at a lost and sinful Israel in Jerusalem and wept. But when they taught it, they're motivated by self-seeking sin and greed. Jesus uses this word here, load. L-O-A-D. It's a picture, it's a great picture, of an animal that is weighed down with too much stuff on him. Stumbling. It's cumbersome. It's intolerable. It's hard for that animal to bear the weight that it all has been put on him. Jesus said, you are hypocrites. You're actors who pile on others while bearing no burden for yourself. You tell others to do these things to grow spiritually and you don't do them yourself. They intentionally made the laws difficult to follow in order to bring about the moral failings of the Jewish working class people. And in bringing about those moral failings, here's what happened. It demoralized the people and it kept the Pharisees and the lawyers upon this to still be the king on the moral hill. What's wrong with you? Why can't you be like us? Look at us. You know, the church historically has done some really dumb things just like this. There are churches that say, that the only Bible that God confirms and affirms is the King James Bible. Go do a little research on that. Thing didn't come out in 1611. <laughs> we have much clearer and better translations. I have no problem with the King James Bible, but it's certainly not the only one. Or me growing up, heard you got to wear a coat and tie to church. Heard you can't cut grass on a Sunday. No musical instruments? <laughs> really? They make a case for it. And they open the Bible. And they, they proof text about three verses. They just lose their little minds over it. And if you question them on it, they're like a hornet's nest. <laughs> you liberal, satanic. 
Whatever. Right? Am I right? Thank you. I was reading this week where a church in Ireland 100 years ago said ladies must wear pants. And at the same time they said that, the men were sitting around wearing kilts. (laughs) Get that picture. What can you do on the Sabbath were questions that the Jewish working class people were asking. Can you walk on the Sabbath? If so, how far? If you can walk on the Sabbath, can you walk on grass on the Sabbath? I'm not exaggerating here. If you can walk and walk on grass on the Sabbath, can you walk on grass and swing your arms? If you can do that, can you walk on the Sabbath, walk on grass, swing your arms and swing a stick in your arms? And if you can do that, if you can walk on the Sabbath, walk on grass on the Sabbath, swing your arms on the Sabbath as you walk and swing a stick on the Sabbath as you walk, can you actually swing a stick where on the end of it, it looks like a golf club head? That's one way to ask, can you play golf on Sunday? But that's the kind of thing they did. It's mind-boggling. And you want to know why people leave the church, walk away from Jesus, because they have had burdens placed on them that are not in the text. Here's what Daryl Bach, Luke's expert in the book of Luke, said. There is something wrong with scribal rules which multiply the number of ways in which a man may offend God, but cannot help him to please God. God's word tells us that you and I are so broken, we need instruction, we need equipping, and we need it done with great compassion and empathy, knowing, knowing that we too could fail, not crushing people with this book. Woe to you for rejecting those I sent to you is the next one. The word there is prophets, verse 47 through 51. The experts focused on the law and left out the prophets. If they had taught the prophets and engaged in what the prophets said, they would have known this, that Jesus was the one that the prophets spoke of in the Old Testament. Jesus is calling them out in some ways. He's saying, look, your fathers killed the prophets that I sent you. And verse 49 is really, really scary. It says, God in his wisdom and in his great sovereignty sent the prophets. But Jesus says, your forefathers killed them in order to silence the message and the messengers of God. And Jesus then gives us this big picture timeline of doing this. He goes back to the first book of Hebrew scriptures, Genesis chapter 4, and he speaks of Cain killing his brother Abel, the first murderer ever in the history of the world. And then he goes to the last book of the Hebrew scripture, Second Chronicles. I know it's not last in your Bible, but last uh, in terms of timeline and chronologically there. And he mentions the murder of Zechariah. And all between that, the men and women I sent you, the prophets, to tell you about me, you killed them. You didn't listen to them. And here's the deal. Here's the scary part. Judgment will come on this generation. It's a promise. Matthew 27. 
We have this scene, if you remember, where Pilate, the head of the Romans, he's walked out to the Jewish people, to the working class people, and he said, I, and to the Pharisees, and to the experts of the lawyers, he said, look, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what did the Jews scream back? They screamed back, let his blood be on us and our children. We despise him. He will not be our king. He is not our Messiah. And their description of that, their words to that, they paid for that. This generation paid for that. Do a little research on the Jewish people starting in AD 66 to about 70 when the Roman Empire took over. Their whole country was a complete mess. That generation paid for that. And then lastly, Jesus saves his, I believe, most powerful, painful indictment of them for last. Woe to you who prevent my people from knowing me via my word. And the word there is power because God's word is the power source along with his spirit for genuine life transformation and connection with God and they hindered others from knowing it. These experts were obstructionists. They hinder others from knowing God through his word. That is the most dangerous person on the face of the earth, the person who tries to prevent you from knowing God's word. Monty said a few verses before in our text last week, He talked about where Jesus said it's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh than it's going to be for you. As he confronts those who have the key of knowledge of God and withhold it from the people of God. It's somebody coming up to you and saying, would you please tell me about the Lord Jesus Christ? And you look at them and say, no way. And they say, hey, let me borrow your Bible to see. I've never read a Bible. And you say, no. We would never think of doing that. That's exactly what the lawyer experts did. They dismissed the written law and added to it. They dismissed the prophets and what God has spoken through them. They made themselves experts and kept common folks from opening the book. When I ask the question, how great is their sin? <laughs> it's hardly describable. It's unthinkable. And that's why Jesus was so harsh with them. You had the key and you hid the key. You wouldn't let anybody else use the key. Your sin is great. Well, all this exposure is simply confirmed. I love how Luke writes as he finishes up the last two verses. He confirms it's all true. Look at their response to Jesus. When someone gives you woes, the desire of that person grieving for your state is that you might repent, that you might hear that. It's like an intervention that we come to each other and say, whoa. This is what's happening with you. You are in trouble. Don't go there. It would have been great if they repented, but verses 53 and 54 show us they did just the opposite. 
They lied in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They despised him. And they ultimately shed his blood on the cross. This, folks, this narrative is just another determination. We're going to kill this guy. And they did. Let me wrap up with some ending thoughts for us as we think about our own application to this text. How is it that people so committed to godliness can stray so far? Did you hear that question? How is it that we who are committed to godliness and holiness and walking closely with Christ can stray so far? It's a great question for us to ask. Simple, simple answer is we pervert, this is what this text teaches, we pervert the scriptures. Satan uses twisted scripture to take the Christian out. He makes God's word a duty and not a delight. He makes it a burden and not a blessing. He gets us so focused on a particular part that little part right there that we justify ourselves and then we make ourselves look good and if people don't follow us, they're idiots. That we forget the whole counsel of God. The scripture so can be misused to produce sin and not godliness. And here's the key for you and I for that not happening. It's not a smarter mind, although that's important. It's not... Um, biblical training, although that's important, the first step for you and I to ensure that these scriptures are not perverted and twisted in such a way that make us self-righteous pukes is our posture, the posture of our own hearts. We come to this word broken and needy, is the great sinner, who, not the one who wants to win Bible jeopardy. We come for ourselves because we are so desperate not to teach others or protect our little tribe. We come not to focus on our outward acts, but to get our hearts renewed and transformed. So this morning, take a minute and ask the question, so what? And maybe even pick one of these, one of these woes and say, you know, in light of my temperament, in light of my story, in light of my struggle, in light of the way I think, in light of my history in the church, in light of the family I grew up in, or whatever it may be, in light of that, this particular woe is the one that I'm most, um, most likely to really struggle with and it would take me out. Take a minute, ask yourself, so what this morning? Mm -hmm.